Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the 5G future fight comes into focus. Tech troubles settle down at the TSP and the three-pronged mission at U.S. Cyber Command. It's Thursday, September 29th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The user behavior analytics capability team at the Internal Revenue Service needs better access to insider threat information. According to the Inspector General Office at the IRS, the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration finds almost a third of systems it examined didn't have the information the insider threat team needed for user behavior analysis. TIGTA recommends the UBAC office coordinate with the agency's Enterprise Security Audit Trails Project Management Office to supply the information. The Coast Guard has six steps to take to improve its cyber workforce, according to the Government Accountability Office. The recommendations include adopting policies to determine staff needs better and establishing a strategic workforce plan for cyber. The home agency of the Coast Guard, the Department of Homeland Security, agreed with the GAO's recommendations. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Leaders from the Defense Department, CISA, and lots of other government agencies are coming to Cyber Talks this year. It's happening Thursday, October 20th at the Waldorf Astoria in downtown D.C. You can find a link to the agenda and registration in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Defense is moving its tests of 5G technology to the next phase. Army Deputy Chief of Staff Lieutenant General John Morrison says all the services will use 5G as key components of their digital transformations. Lieutenant General Bill Bender, U.S. Air Force, retired, is Senior Vice President for Strategic Accounts and Government Relations at Lidos. He's former Chief Information Officer of the Air Force. Bill, it's great to see you again. Thanks for coming on the program. We talked a little bit before we went on the air about the potential for 5G, not just at the tip of the spear. We talk about that all the time but for all kinds of mission delivery. What do you see as the biggest potential for 5G across a service like the Air Force? Welcome. Thanks for having me, Francis. Um, you know, I would say that uh, 5G is the uh, presents us with just tremendous opportunity, uh, capacity, speed, uh, modernization of our larger uh, network, and, and all of the possibilities around transformational change, uh, you know, where IT is ubiquitous in every mission that we do. And I, and I think some of our earlier discussion touched on uh, mission from multiple different um, aspects. One, of course, is putting bombs on target if you're the uh, Army, the Navy, the Air Force, uh, or whatever your mission contribution is. But beyond that, running the business of those services and any federal agency is uh, just as important. And to get the advances and the transformational change that uh, IT leaders across the federal space are going after, 5G is a key component of that. What do you think will be the areas besides putting ordinance on a target that you would expect to see a service like the Air Force explore with 5G, Bill? Well, you know, I, I think uh, let's just take as a, uh, a proxy for a whole host of different missions. But if you were to implement uh, across various post camp and station and uh, modernize the infrastructure to include a 5G future, it changes the um, security footprint. Um, you know, a big 
concern locally, uh, depending on what your assets at that location are, would be uh, countering the UAS threat, which is, you know, really uh, growing in concern to our, our defense leaders. And so 5G then allows the speed to response to, uh, you know, sort of an emerging target uh, that today's IT infrastructure simply wouldn't, uh, you know, allow. So that's one mission set, but but really uh, command and control at a local level and then uh, fitting into the global mosaic of command and control and so on and so forth, all enhanced significantly with a 5G uh, infrastructure. Does survivability of a 5G network look different or, or operate differently than it would one of the networks previously that the services have used? Well, I, I don't know if differently is the way to look at it, or maybe just in terms of robust, uh, resilient, and hardened where, when and where it needs to be. The, the greater the threat, the more uh, precious the resources that we're trying to defend or protect would simply uh, connote you know, more thought in the how we design and implement a 5G uh, network, for example. Um, one of the real issues that we're facing today, I believe, in in this whole uh, era of trying to convert to a 5G enterprise, is one in which uh, heavy front-end resources required. So the communications industry has certainly invested heavily in developing it, but the the flip side of you know to to get access to uh, do implementations around your particular mission set, there's an awful lot of testing and integration and uh, expense associated with actually making that conversion from what we have today to where we're trying to go in the future. And so that's something that I think we're all grappling with. Does heavy front-end resource requirements connote lighter back-end resource requirements, or does is that not the right way to think about it? I think there is a trade-off. I'm not sure it's between front-end and back-end. I think it's really um, making a full conversion to uh, sort of an infrastructure that allows the future that you want, iterative in nature, uh, continuously expanding and provisioning uh, as required as the mission morphs over time. And uh, a significant aspect here would be around what you know, the services call agile combat employment, which is the, the recognition that uh, the risk environment has changed considerably. So um, kind of moving in hind, in plain sight or pick up and go, staying in a location only for as long as you need to, uh, and then moving on. And so this whole notion of agility is enhanced significantly with a 5G infrastructure if designed in the way to do that. I note, and this is just my observation, so if I observed incorrectly, I'm, I'm open to hearing that, but it strikes me that the department has been focused on 5G for a long time and thinking about the, the generations, I guess, in, in a more linear way. 3G, they started thinking about 4G. 4G started thinking about 5G. And now, over the last, I'd say, year, 18 months, I've detected a shift where the department is now referring to 5G and next G and not putting numbers on it anymore, thinking about it more exponentially, it sounds like. Um, yeah. What does that mean, and, and what should one observe as a result of that change just in the nomenclature bill? 
I think that there is a uh, significant shift taking place between 4 and 5G and 5G and next. The, the 5G aspect is uh, really having to do with the engineering behind the capability, and it requires uh, a different infrastructure entirely, one that is much more um, you know, sort of plant or, or uh, physical structure uh, intensive in order to get the full implementation of 5G. To take full advantage, you have to uh, think differently about how you, um, the, I, I never like to use the word architect because everybody's got a different perspective of that, but how you design and engineer your physical plant around 5G is significantly different than uh, earlier versions, so 4G and below. And so it, it'll take doing that, but then it becomes very iterative in nature, right? So, th- so that's the journey we're on today. It sounds like then that with this shift that you just described, we'll get to a more iterative evolution the way that we have with compute, where there's probably not going to be a dramatic change in the way that we do it. It's just going to be kind of a Moore's Law type of growth throughout the next, I don't know, five, ten years at least. Is Am I hearing it right? Yeah, that's exactly how I describe it. Is it you know you're you're doing a, a significant shift in the technology from 4G to 5G. Once 5G is in place, and as I said, capital intensive on the front end, you have now opened sort of the the panacea to a future world that becomes iterative in nature, but by the design, very uh, easy to expand and uh, morph as required to the mission set. So a lot of upfront work, as you mentioned earlier. Bill, I always learn something from you every time we get together. I really appreciate your time today. Great talking to you, and thanks again for having me. I appreciate it. You can read more about 5G in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, coming on Monday's show, The Cutting Edge of Technology at the Pentagon. Mike Madsen, the acting head of the Defense Innovation Unit, is on Monday's Daily Scoop podcast. You can find that show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and always at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Thrift Savings Plan is into month four of its transition to the Converge record-keeping system. The TSP says more than two million participants have made the switch to the new system. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Where are you now in this transition? We've talked about it a number of times. The challenges that some participants had are well-documented how are you doing as far as dealing with some of the challenges that the participants have been having? Welcome. Thank you, Francis. I appreciate uh, being here. I would say that in terms of the call center, we have resolved the the wait times. As, as you have seen, we are now answering calls in less than 30 seconds. So that has resolved, I think, a big pain point. Um, in addition, people are logging in and setting up their accounts. More than two and a half million people have done that. Um, the thing that you know, we have 6.6 million participants, but even prior to June, only roughly four million of them ever logged into their my account. So 
there's about two and a half million people who never created logins. Um, that means we're more than halfway there for the people who have ever logged in. Um, we'll expect that that'll continue to ramp up because as you get to the year end and people start thinking about tax issues and that sort of thing, we'll see that number continue to grow. Um, but those issues also in terms of people having problems setting up their accounts, that seems to have um, resolved itself. At the board meeting uh, most recently, I note it, there are a number of fact-checking things that you yeah. and your colleagues wanted to point out. We can talk about a couple of those because I think they're important to address, but why was it necessary to kind of go at it in that way, do you think, Kim, to say these this is the things that people are saying and here's the reality of what we're seeing from the TSP perspective? Because what we're also seeing is people um, are holding on to old information, right? There was so much press and there was so much commentary in June and early July about issues that people were um, seeing. And what we have found is that people are continuing to reference that as opposed to what's going on currently. And we thought that this might be the best way of pointing out, you know, this was a problem. Clearly the call center was a, an actual problem. It's no longer a problem. All right. You point that one out, calls answered on average within 30 seconds. Um, another one that's listed in the materials from the board meeting this month, my account was not right after the blackout. And I know that this says we received more than a, do a dozen inquiries out of, I mean, that's doesn't sound like many compared to the millions and millions of participants. Well, it doesn't, have. but I, ha I have to say that, you know, we're in business to invest people's retirement money. So making sure we have that accurately done down to the penny is of utmost importance to us. And so there were people who said um, the balance was wrong. And then there were people who said you um, changed my investment allocation. So for example, I was invested 100% in G and you shifted me to 100% in the S fund. Um, every single case that we got, we ran down and none of them were accurate. People had either forgotten withdrawals they made, they forgot they made an inner fund transfer, um, those sorts of things. But the transition itself did not cause any issues with account balances. All right. Another fact you wanted to fact check, my beneficiaries were lost after the blackout and I did see reports of that too. Right. So as you see, we, um, again, out of our 6.6 .6 million participants, 4.8 million of them never had a beneficiary on file. They're, ref they're relying on the statutory order of precedence. So if I die, my spouse or my child, and it goes, and so that's, and that's perfectly fine. That, uh, that takes care of divorce situations where you want to make sure your current wife gets the money. Um, but so 1.4 million people had beneficiary designations, 1.2 million of them were converted and one, uh, 157,000 were not because the data, the data quality, it's not that we don't know who the people are. It's that the data quality didn't cut it to move over to the new system. 
Um, and so we have the TSP3s on file. So if anyone were to pass away, we would honor that TSP3. But what they can't do is it won't show up in my account. So if you log in, you won't see your beneficiaries. And if you want to do that, you can just go in and designate beneficiaries. This happened to me. I was one of these people. My data quality wasn't good enough. And so I went in and renamed my beneficiary. And now I can see it in my account. You got to get your data quality better, Kim. And Come don't on. you know it? Come on. Don't you know it? All right. Um, you also covered uh, the results of a participant satisfaction survey that the numbers look really good. The, num- the, the bottom line to me as an outside observer was people seem to be more satisfied with the service they get from you guys than participants in uh, private sector uh, fund managers. Um, was this satisfaction survey done before or after con- the convergence? It was done right before the Converge. It was in April and early May. Um, and that's typically when we did it. It wasn't that we set out to uh, you know, beat the, the transition. We normally do it in that time frame, and we will do another one next spring. Um, and so we will be very interested in seeing people's responses and, and what comments they have. Yeah, that's that was what I wanted to follow up with, which was... What can you take away from this one that was done before the converged transit? I'm sorry, I called it convergence a minute ago. I was thinking about the army for some unknown <laughs> reason. Um, what can you take away from this survey based on the fact that you have done since then this big transition that may or may not affect the numbers that you get next year as far as looking at trend lines and so on? What it does tell us is what is important to our participants. You know, what do they find valuable? What do they um, like about us? And what would they like more of or less of? And so that is still useful information for us and for our vendor in terms of making um, changes, improvements. They can look to this and say, all right, this is more important to our participants and this is less important. So we'll prioritize. Were there any data points that came out of that survey that struck you as particularly significant, particularly surprising, particularly uh, different or unusual? No, for the most part, these have been relatively consistent in terms of what participants value, what participants want. Um, You know, I would note that that, for example, uh, participants want more investment choices. And in part, that led us to offering the mutual fund window. So there are, um, in terms of people wanting various calculators that they can use, we've done some of that, and now we can do more. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is the kind of value that we get from our participant survey. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. I know based on our many conversations over the years, you don't just look at these and say, oh, that's nice. And then just kind of put it away until you do the, the, do it the next year. Right. No, we continue. Um, you know, one of the things we're doing that now, right? We're even with Converge, um, we are looking at the satisfaction of people who are using our various channels, you know, the, the thrift line, the website, my account. And we're, we're trying to respond to, people who are saying, you know, this isn't working, that's not working, and and making small changes as we can. All right. Um, the changes will continue, it sounds like, and I know the work continues on your part, and it's great to talk to you as always, Kim. Thank you. 
Thanks so much, Francis. You can read more about the TSP changeover in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Voting's open for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. You can vote for your choices until tomorrow. That's the deadline for the FedScoop 50 votes. We'll announce the winners November 3rd. You can find a link to see the finalists and place your votes in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Former Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford, U.S. Marine Corps retired, will lead an examination of the leadership structure for U.S. Cyber Command and the National Security Agency. The group that's doing the examination will take two to three months to do it. David Fredericks, the Executive Director of U.S. Cyber Command, at Defense Talks, he tells moderator Vishal Amin of Microsoft Federal, Cyber Command has three main warfighting missions. Well, Dave, thanks for joining me today. I mean, let's jump right into it. I I was thinking about how we kicked this off today, and I was thinking about five words. Those five words were, if not me, then who? Any Navy alumni, I'm not one, would probably know that. And those words were echoed by a gentleman named Travis Mannion. And he said those words before he gave his life. Uh, Meaning, if I don't do something, if I don't act, um, someone less prepared, less willing will have to. On our team at Microsoft, we use those five words to drive our cyber mission and defense. And mission is a big thing at U.S. Cybercom. Tell me a little bit about that. What is the mission of U.S. Cybercom? What does that mean to you? Can you expand on that for me? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, defense is key. So, you know, when you look at our assigned missions, we have, we have three main warfighting missions, and two of them are very, very focused on defense, but cyber defense uh, is, is, uh, is kind of built through, throughout. So our number one mission is uh, defend the nation uh, against significant cyber attack, and, and we work that very closely as a whole government team uh, with CISA. Uh, and with uh, the FBI and other departments, and of course the private sector. Uh, you know, much of the infrastructure, almost all the infrastructure in the United States uh, is owned and operated by the private sector, and so they're a key part of the cyber defense team. And the other mission we have is defending the DOD information network, and, and uh, we call it the DODEN, because uh, DOD loves to make up acronyms of acronyms. And uh, the, uh, but really what, it, what that refers to is this massive network of networks at, at multiple classification levels. It refers to all of our data, and it refers to our weapons platform. You really, you really can't find a modern weapon that's not interconnected and digital. And so uh, we have responsibility to work with all the military services uh, to basically command, control, and direct defense of those systems. So that's, a, that's definitely a full-time, everyday mission for us. And then finally, you know, we play a really important role supporting our other combatant commands. And so Cybercom uh, deploys forces and provides support to European command uh, right now in support of their their focus on uh, supporting Ukraine and on defending NATO. Uh, and we do the same for Indo-Pacific Command out in Hawaii uh, and, and every other combatant command. So we have, in that mission space, you know, we're uh, doing a full spectrum defense support, but we're also involved in, in the offense. And so providing cyber, cyber offensive capability, uh, which is a unique, a unique mission set for Cyber Command in, in the department. That's amazing. I think collaboration is key. Interagency, external, even when we go to our international partners, we'll talk about training a little bit at the end. But what we really see when we start collaborating is, especially over the last year, we see the threat landscape expand. Microsoft releases a Microsoft Digital Defense Report approximately every October. I think our next one should be coming out soon. But in the last one, we saw that you know, that space is expanding. The, the threat landscape is coming from diverse areas. We're seeing bad actors and nation-state actors that we've never seen before. What are your thoughts on the threat landscape? Uh, well, if I had to pick two words uh, to talk about kind of the cyber threat landscape, it would be fuzziness and speed. 
And by fuzziness, I mean we're, we're not facing a threat that is, that is easy to put into, uh, into uh, stovepipes or bins uh, that fit traditional roles for the military uh, versus traditional roles for the law enforcement. You have uh, virtually every nation state adversary that we're worried about um, not only has military forces and intelligence services that conduct cyber operations, but they also work with proxies. They work with cyber crime elements, or they at right. least provide kind of a sanctuary for cyber crime. Uh, and, uh, and, and so there's a constant challenge. And so to your point on teamwork, um, our partnership with CISA and FBI cyber right. is really important. Uh, and we, we play kind of the away game on the federal government side for cyber defense and cyber operations and make a kind of home game to work with. Uh, work with the private sector. So um, just to hit a few of the adversaries that kind of uh, we watch every day, um, obviously there's a lot of discussion right now about Russia uh, and their cyber capabilities. It's, it's going to be interesting to see um, how things play out in the long run uh, with, the, uh, with their operations in Ukraine. Uh, obviously, uh, overall, performance isn't great in terms of their ability to synchronize combined arms. Um, there have been some cyber attacks that have been very significant. I'd point to the, the Viasat attack as an example of that. Right. Um, at the same time, we're not in any uh, position right now to, to start drawing lessons learned or, or write the history of, of the cyber war related to Ukraine. So we're watching that very closely. But I, I would definitely not underestimate the Russians. Uh, they are a, a sophisticated adversary, and, and we've got to keep an eye on them. Uh, China, just to talk about another, you know, really what we consider our pacing challenge. Um, when you look at Chinese military doctrine and the way they think about it, um, you know, that some of their authoritative authors in the PLA uh, have stated that cyberspace dominance is, they consider key to being successful in op at the operational level of war. Uh, we have to take that seriously. You know, we have to listen to them. And so we take our role and responsibility to uh, be ready to defend networks in the Pacific uh, in support of Indo-Pacific Command very seriously. And of course, um, we're ready to impose cost and provide offensive and information operations options uh, when, when required. That's interesting. I'm, it's really important. And what it leads me to is really that next question that we discussed is, when we look at what you are doing at US Cyber Command and what we're doing in the private sector, to be able to accomplish that mission, to be able to be present in that space, are there innovations needed, right? Do we need to partner better together anywhere, and where is that? Well, I, yes, I, the, answer, the short answer on that is <laughs> yes, we need to partner better together. And I am encouraged in the general direction we're going across the federal government and with the private sector um, on, on cyber security partnering and, and information sharing. Uh, but there's a lot of work ahead of us still. Uh, if you look at some of what I see as some of the challenges where I think we could use innovation, um, one is how do you partner at scale? Right. And, you know, I think if you look back kind of at the history of cyber policy and that we've approached this before, it kind of started off with the idea of, of sharing indicators and, you know, sharing kind of more at the technical level. Um, and we've been attempting that for a number of years. It's really hard to scale. And it's actually really hard to offer uh, high value information. And so what we've heard from partners is they really want collaborative analysis uh, and they want uh, from the government, the broader federal government, speaking more broadly than Cybercom right now, is good cybersecurity guidance. And so, you know, I kind of really uh, give a lot, of, a lot of kudos to uh, CISA uh, and NSA and others. You know, a, a recent example is the Iranian, um, the cybersecurity guidance that they released on the Iranian cyber actor, IRGC. Right very effective guidance. And so I think there's areas where the federal government can really, really add value. Where I think we need help on the private sector is really lean in and help us figure out how to get the balance of information sharing correct. And so from a cybercom point of view, what we're looking for is really early warning 
Um, you know, the private sector cybersecurity analysts are in the front lines of, of if we're ever in a cyber conflict. There's no question. They're, the front lines of the cyber war is going to be the private sector. And if, if the you know, cybersecurity threat teams um, yeah, at Microsoft uh, and, and at broader corporate organizations, you know, if they can give us a head start and say, we're, we're seeing anomalous activity here to where we can better posture our, our forces and be ready to, to help with deterring any kind of a threat, that's a much more satisfying result than incident response. Right. right. I think one of the things that I want to lean into with just a short amount of time left is we're seeing, I think I read a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago, by 2025, we're going to see about a three and a half million person gap in the cyber workforce, um, encouraging individuals to join the workforce. I, I mean, as a prior, prior Hornet guy, right, I can watch Top Gun and it convinced me to join and fly eventually. Um, but we need that type of drive that type of motivation for individuals to join the workforce. We need to empower them in different ways. We need to educate them in different ways, even retain them, right? Whether it's private sector, public sector partnership, whether it's fellowships. What are your thoughts on that? What are you doing to encourage the cyber warrior, upskilling, retainment, all of that? That's it's a great final topic. So one, if there's anybody from the entertainment industry out here, please make a cyber Top Gun. We we could use your help. I know on that. I know a couple people. Yeah. Maybe we could do it. Uh, yeah. I actually joked about that when we were in uh, Estonia at the uh, Cyber Commanders Conference, the International Partnership Conference that we, we had back a couple months ago, and got a good laugh as well from there um, because it did it affected a lot of young people. Right. You know, I'm a former soldier. You know, uh, my my inspiration to join the army included. You know, I had uh, family members who had served in the in the military in, in multiple conflicts uh, for, for several generations back. And so I felt like, you know, a call to do that. Um, we're competing against a, a really broad set of opportunities, right? So uh, young students that graduate from college with a computer science degree, they have a lot of options. So one of the things we're doing is we just launched a new network called the Academic Engagement Network. And it is a partnership with Cyber Command and all the service components, so Army, Cyber, 16th Air Force, et cetera. And uh, we launched that in January, reaching out to universities. We have 98 universities have signed up. Amazing. Uh, that includes uh, 14 community colleges. It includes 10 minority-serving institutions. And so what we're doing, kind of our sweet spot on there, is really giving the, the faculty and the students unique kind of insights and access to our, our cyber professionals. And we're sponsoring student mentoring projects um, and faculty workshops to both, um, you know, we want to both learn from academia uh, learn, you know, use them as part of our innovation team, uh, but also we really want to engage the future workforce. How do we get out there and inspire students? A, a lot of students, if they don't grow up around DOD, they don't even know that you can be a civilian in DOD, right? right? I mean, it, you know, they think of DOD, they only think about the military service. We want to encourage people, of course, to join the military to serve in cyber, but there are also some students we want to encourage them and talk to them about uh, civilian opportunities as well. Well, we love that, and we really applaud your work with the community colleges at Microsoft. We're doing something similar. I'll end with one last very short question. I was, I was speaking to a friend of mine, Alex Gorski, the prior CEO and chairman of Johnson Johnson yesterday, and he, he said, do something you really love or learn to love what you do. Which one of those was that for you when it came to cyber, and do you have any final thoughts? Wow, that's tricky. I, um, I thought I'd put you on your toes. Yeah, you definitely, off. yeah, that was not in the script here, so a little hard here. Um, I'll tell you this. I, you know, and I, and I, when I talk to people about serving in the national security community, um, you know, I'm, I've been, you know, I, I served seven years in the Army, and then, uh, you know, 25 years now as an NSA officer. You know, currently on joint duty in Cyber Command. 
And what I tell people is, you can stay in the federal government and reinvent yourself all the time. I started off as a Korean linguist and as, and as an intelligence analyst. Right. And, uh, and over time, moved into collection operations and then finally moved into cyber. And it's just been a fascinating time. And I, you know, it's been a complete honor to serve this nation. Uh, and uh, I wake up every morning super excited to go to work. The executive director of U.S. Cyber Command, David Frederick, with moderator Vishal Amin of Microsoft Federal. You can find a link to the videos for all of the Defense Talk sessions in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review on your platform of choice. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns on Monday. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.